Off the ball. You two lads are from Leinster, so it's no wonder you're given out of the provincial championship. I don't want to take away the provinces. Who grew the geographical line back in the day? It's because of the way that the provinces are broken up. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Now you're very welcome back. So we have been long overdue a visit from our next guest, Mr. Paul Rouse. You are very welcome. Hello. Thanks, William Joe. How are you? Uh, great. The only way we get you in these days is when you have a book to plug. So here we are. <laughs> uh, sport in Modern Irish Life. This is a series of essays, stories, observations. The uh, sleeve of the book tells me it is an attempt to capture the sheer variety of experiences available in sport. Is that a pretty good summary of what you're trying to do here? Yeah, um, I am. I And it's very personal in that respect because, well, a, any book that anybody ever writes is ultimately an exercise in self-indulgence. You decide what you want to put in and what you want to leave out. And this book in particular is an exercise in, in self-indulgence. I started it during the lockdown when I, I've had the great privilege to work for the Irish Examiner for the last seven or eight years as to write a column for them. And... I've I've loved doing it, and in the course of that, I probably have written six hundred thousand words over the course of eight years. And I just started going back through those and picking out things that I thought were okay, and using that as the basis to write a book. And it it was something that I thought I'm just going to enjoy myself. I don't really care if anyone publishes this. I'm just going to for myself try and see if I can put something together using those bits and pieces using new things that I wrote and researched for it uh, just as a way of of passing time if truth be told and it was uh, fortunately in the end Merriam Press did want to did decide that it was worth publishing there weren't by the way other people didn't want to publish it so it's not like it was there was a guarantee in it it wasn't a bidding war there was no bidding war (laughs) there was no bidding war but I, I I really really enjoyed doing it it's totally different than what I've done before. Before I've written history books, and this this is not really a history book. There is, are bits of history in it, but it's about modern sport, and it's about I suppose my understanding of modern sport. Yes, it's full of uh, vignettes and standalone thoughts and observations. And oh, this is an interesting thing that tends to happen without any great conclusion. But I suppose the 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 uh, cumulative uh, weight of it all just uh, by, by definition gives a sense of God there is such variety to what sport means in the country I never like books or articles or radio stations which present me with a neat box of opinions readily formed in which somebody tells me how I should think I like someone to make me think yeah. and to to say things that are interesting and to assemble them in particular ways. But I never believe a story that's neatly packaged because it, I always end up thinking about what has somebody left out? Yes. What are the bits that have been inconvenient here to the neat telling of this story that we're going to leave to one side? And I really believe that no book should have a conclusion. Obviously, a novel or often has to have a conclusion. Not always, but often. And you do want to find out what happens to people. But I think history books that finish with conclusions are relatively speaking unconvincing and similarly sociology books are are explorations of what's happening in our world I mean who can really offer a conclusion to the change that's happening in our world at the moment Well indeed So if you writing a book is an indulgence can I just be indulged for a a brief moment to give an example of one of the little vignettes and this one just goes across two or three pages but I saw Dolly Mount Strand 
and I am in that neck of the woods routinely. I, I spend a lot of time on Dolly Man Strand. And uh, you actually um, captured something which has occurred to me, but I haven't really verbalised or, or, or uh, strung it all together um, as such and, and, and given it, you know, the, the kind of coherent thought that you had. So, again, anyone who knows Dolly Man Strand on the Hoth Road, you take a, a right turn over the wooden bridge and on a windy day, as you drive over the wooden bridge, you will see on the strand the kites because kite surfing there is a huge attraction, hugely popular between March and November. And you make the point it's a a rejection of the formal world of sport and that the participants have organised themselves as more of a community as opposed to a club. And there just is a nod and a wink and how you doing and they've started to get to know each other and it's it's that kind of a community and they're not competing against each other it's just for the sheer joy of participating and then you also note the iconic and people will know them the modernist yellow bathing shelters built in 1930s Dublin by the corporation um, beautiful in their own way like I've got great affection for them and, and uh, again it's maybe the intention was it would be just for the scorching summer days but actually you go there every single day of the year you'll meet someone and I routinely go there and I talk to strangers there and it's this lovely hub not least for men who aren't so good at that where it starts off with the how's the water today and within a minute that person you're chatting to is explaining the stress they're under or the medical condition being the reason as to why they're swimming and it can you know you may never see them again and it's that lovely thing and it's all very free. And then 30 yards away from the bathing shelter is Royal Dublin Golf Club. And I would suggest Hello Money could be in the region of 15 or 20K just to get in the door. And there's a big private property uh, sign. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd love to be in there as well. Um, I love my golf. And so that's this lovely, like, that, to give people a sense of this book, that's a lovely two, three page vignette, a passing moment on a Saturday, just one particular spot and just all the, the, the wonderful array of, of ways which sport has its fingerprints all over this one little beach. It's so for people who don't know Dolly Mount Strand, it's in Dublin Bay and it's on North Bull Island on the way out to to Clunt uh, way out to, to Holt or yeah. uh, just past Clontarf and it didn't exist 200 years ago. So the port walls were built, the, the the bull wall was built north and south and on that there was an accumulation of what was a sandbank and it grew into an island and it still is growing out into the in, into the sea. It's about 800 metres wide at its largest point and about five kilometres long. Mm. Now, it matters, I think, for a variety of different reasons. That idea of formal leisure place to play, Brendan Behan described it many years ago as Dublin's Riviera the place where inner city Dublin emptied out to go to the seaside in that great Victorian tradition from the end of the 19th century onwards and remade a sporting world and a, and a world of a beach culture out out along that place which is one aspect to it and that has constantly evolved over the years but it was originally owned not by Dublin City as as it is owned now although it's partially owned by Dublin Port still who own the Bull Wall but the rest of it is owned by Dublin City apart from the area that's owned by the golf club Um, so this is where the great gift of doing something that's so self-indulgent that things happen from it I tried to write about Royal Dublin and I contacted Royal Dublin to see their minute books 
and to look at their records because Royal Dublin was the oldest golf club in what is now the south of Ireland and Republic of Ireland. It was founded actually when laid out first of all in the Phoenix Park in 1885 and then it had rooms on Grafton Street just, just down from us here and then moved out first to Sutton and then from the 1889 to that area that it kind of ended up colonising along there so I contacted them and eventually uh, a brilliant guy out there Shane Darby contacted me and invited me three weeks ago to go and play around out there which was uh, quite a distressing experience for those who had to witness the, 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 the swing that was involved but it was a really really enjoyable I didn't have the missed call from you you must have yeah, yeah, funny, funny. I'll tell you. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you, it, you, you would have been much better sorted uh, by by going out there, and and um, I really enjoyed it. But it was, it's a reminder that this is space that that is private space. Mm-hmm. In what it, the rest of it is public land. So you have two golf courses out there, St Anne's at one, yeah, and and. Royal Dublin and the other and they own more than one fifth of the island between them what is also out there is Ireland's first ever bird sanctuary which was there from the 1930s and then you have those informal structures built by Dublin Corporation as you say for swimming in so you have a whole load of different things going on there Mm. you have nature conservation you have a private golf course two private golf courses and you have a public recreational space and the three things are not compatible Mm. in a small area so there's a tension between the three of them particularly as environmentalism has grown and how do you manage those three things is really difficult in a city island even if it is growing it's not growing quickly enough to accommodate everything and it's a constant challenge to manu- to manage those those various different things and it, it, it leads to, to disagreement and it shows you also on that island how sport has changed you know the way that there's that modern sport of clay pigeon shooting as kind of it's in the Olympics or at least and they, they, they send them out and they shoot them. Um, that used to take place in nor- on the North Bull Island 100 years ago, except they used live birds. They let the birds free. They flew them up and it wasn't just pigeons. It was they shot everything that they could possibly find. That was there. Mm. As recently as the 1950s and the 19, into the 1960s, the Dublin Coursing Club used to bag hares off the island to be chased by dogs in the place there are now no hares left on it is a symbol of the bull island the hare is but it's gone from there yeah. the fish I'm not necessarily sure that if I fished off Dollymount Strand I would necessarily want to eat that fish it's been brutal about it and swimming off it there are days when you swim off that where it's it really it's not great oh it's a disgrace I mean I raised that with Neil Martin actually when he was in studio here um, a couple of years ago. There are too many parts of the country whereby if it has rained heavily the day before, don't go swimming. Is the brutal truth because there's been a spillage. And this comes again to investment in sewage infrastructure. I say this as the son of a water engineer. So this comes from investment in sewage infrastructure yeah. and in basic systems of water supply. But we do, of course, have an issue because we have to pay for through taxation through the development of these services and that's not easy to organise or to encourage people to pay for <laughs> no to say the least so look that's just one indulgence on my part it caught my eye across this um, book these array of topics you said it's quite a personal book so you are a son of Offley and you came through from a sporting point of view at a bloody good time as well 
So how did that shape you? Because I know you touch on that in the book. Oh, it was it was an amazing time to be young and growing up in Offaly. When you think about it now, this county with a population of 60,000 people was competing, for example, when I was 11 in 1981, Offaly played in the All-Ireland Football and Hurling Finals, winning the Hurling and losing to Kerry in the football. Come back the following year, robbed by Kilkenny in the Leinster Final in 1982 in Hurling, but beat the Kerry team that was going for five in a row in the eighty in the eighty two final. Mm. Now the footballers only won one have only won one Lancer championship since then. But the hurlers went on to win in eighty five, win in ninety four, win in ninety eight. And to these are look days of splendor to, to for a small county to win in either code at any grade is extraordinary at that stage. And to win in both codes growing up was was an, an an incredible thing and I had a cousin Charlie Conroy who was on the 82 panel he played in the 81 final he was a brilliant footballer and as things turned out mm. my mum is from Road and my granddad was from Road and played in the off, first Offaly team that had been fielded in Offaly minor team from 1928 he was a selector on the Offaly team in 69 that got to an All-Ireland final and so you're brought up in this world where sport mean meant Gaelic games in a formal sense mm. because that was the only formal sport I played before I was 17 but in the school and in our local area like where I lived in, in Durham within Tullamore Parish but on the road between Kilbegan and Tullamore is a local farm area and every evening we'd meet up Lynch's and, and, and O'Brien's and Lynham's and Daly's and pour into a field and play anything depending on what was going on. Play rugby, play soccer, played cricket. We, there was a local cricket club. We used to liberate some of their equipment to use in the evenings. During the Tour de France, we'd have cycling races around the area. So we recreated that formal world of sport in our informal rural parish mm. um, all the way through the 80s. And, 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 and it, was, it was a brilliant time. So you have the formal and the informal and it was it was a joy I think yes I mean it already sounds just beautiful and I'm imagining nice summer evenings as well to go with it it never rained I think in my memory it never rained I hear you I wonder are the latest generation having those um, seasonal flirtations with golf during the open or pitch and put during the open and then bikes during the Tour de France and uh, you know, because there's uh, endless bandwidth on the internet. If you're into one sport, you can just go very deep in that and ignore everything else. Whereas we took what we could get at the time and then we indulged accordingly. Yeah, I, th- I think the availability, also the availability of formal ways to play those sports is much greater now sure. than it was. So it's not just that you see them all the time now. You can actually more or less get into that diversity of experience yeah. fairly early if that's how how you how you want to go I, and I will say there is there's a lot spoken about kids and it's really interesting I think I go back to my old school in Colosh de Colum in Tullamore every so often and was Tullamore CBS when I was there and it really struck me the extent to which kids are, are very very similar to the to the way we were when we were in that school nicely abusive to anyone who might consider themselves having something to say to them and I mean that in a in a in a slagging way they're great kids really really um, it's really enjoyable 
to to chat them. And but the one thing that's different, of course, is the most obvious thing of all, which is the phone, which is transforming our our world, transforming society, and is only at the early stages of this. And we 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 haven't got close to understanding how it is changing human behavior. We know that it is trans- transforming human behavior because of the way in which algorithms are used to shape behaviors and and to push people in certain directions and to send them down particular cul-de-sacs in a form of extractive capitalism which is which is how these companies make money so we know it is changing behavior mm-hmm. but allowing for that allowing for that i don't see i don't see the kids who are in the school that i was in as being enormously different than i in the group of friends that i had were in that school. Well, that's a reassuring thought. For and some of the some of the teachers are still there, which I really like. <laughs> and you're realising how young were you when you thought me? If you're still here, here now, um, I guess the um, and you do talk about that elemental uh, pleasure of participation, the joy of kicking a ball or catching or striking a golf ball or you name it. Um, you know, it's it's such a, an aspect of sport that uh, watching it provides such pleasure and escapism. Reading about it talking about it, debating it. Uh, I think you made the observation that if you took away work and sleep, and I presume the general chit-chat that goes on around the immediacy of family life and who has to be where and who has to be picked up, what do we talk about the most? I mean, aside from uh, uh, the week that's been, uh, where I have a fair sense what people were talking about the most, uh, in the main sports, probably up there for a large quotient to society. For an awful lot of people, it's what drives the world, both local sport national sport and international sport it's yeah. the endless churn of sport yeah I'd say WhatsApp groups if you could somehow extract uh, the topic percentage for a lot of them it's 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 massive and it's it's a huge engine of conversation in people's lives and within families of all and we have had a look at a world without sport um, and it was at the start of the pandemic when everything shut down mm. and what it meant to people's lives, people so so many houses or many houses are built on the capacity of people to go training. It is an outlet for people to go training, to go and do matches, to go to matches. And I know certainly in for for my kids, for example, not having that was was very, very strange. And this is a house where what was then an 11 year old boy who who taught that Ludo was a contact sport so you can see when that stopped when that was taken away there was no outlet mm. now there are people who will say well good <laughs> like might make you think of something else or to push down different avenues which ultimately seem to me to involve baking banana bread or doing other or talking about baking banana bread mm. and that to me was no substitute obviously but it 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 showed what a hold sport had and even when sports slowly came back the fact that it slowly came back I remember actually training on the girls gaily football team in Dublin and we after a couple of weeks we got organised and we did Zoom training, training sessions mm. with Athletics Fitness and gave the mound we went around and gave everyone a ball who didn't have a ball and set out a practice regime for them and it was at least it was something but it was no substitute for the collective being in the same place 
in a club meeting other people and all that that does mm. it's not I don't believe sport is inherently good at all I don't buy that in any shape or form I wouldn't be blasé about it I wouldn't be complacent about it I don't see it as fixing society's ills I don't believe in the line that oh if a kid keeps playing sport they won't go too far wrong that's self-evidently not true there are too many examples of Mm. of where that isn't the case allowing for that it brings so much colour and joy and interest and focus to people's lives that that it is fundamental Mm. well particularly as, as society continues to evolve along most recent lines to have something which brings people together when they wouldn't be together otherwise is um, going to be more powerful than ever. And do you mean by that the manner in which of isolation? Yeah. Because of... Sitting in a room on the internet being spoon-fed nonsense. And uh, there's a degree of going training, talking to other people and being brought back to reality a touch. It's funny, I was talking to um, the summer school on in UCD at the moment and I was talking to a lot of American students who are here from Big Ten the Big Ten universities are here in a programme in UCD at the moment and I was talking to them it was meant to be a a class about the troubles which it did turn into but in the first point it was we ended up talking about this idea of information and evidence and how you separate truth from fiction how you recognise propaganda for what it is and it's really, really difficult. And it's very difficult to 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 teach it. And I, I do think I do think that literacy and information studies should be fundamental to primary schools and mm. secondary schools now. And people should be able to distinguish between what's real and what's not real. And we understand that even supposedly reputable organizations need not necessarily be producing true stuff at the moment Mm. but in the round there are reputable sources of information and disreputable ones and then there are people who just simply lie and lie routinely lie repeatedly for their own propaganda in terms of political causes or to make money through commercial programs and it's very very hard now to distinguish and it's very easy to be fooled and it's really easy to make to make mistakes mm. and um, and it's funny though it's kind of not new I was I was thinking about this the other day um, I I wrote a book called Sport in Ireland uh, in 2015 and in the middle of it I wrote a thing about J.A. McAleary being the guy who while on his honeymoon in Scotland discovered soccer and brought it to the north and this was the first match and that McAleary was the founding father of um, Irish soccer and there's a brilliant article that was written two years ago by a really nice man from the north who whose name has just gone out of my head and I apologise uh, for that where he pointed out how entirely wrong I was and that that McAleary's was was his own publicist about how he was the founding father of Irish soccer and had been since the 1880s or 1890s and how we had basically all swallowed it. Mm. So it's not new, right? Misinformation, disinformation, malinformation is not new. Mistakes are not new. What is new is the sheer scale and reach of propaganda and the fact that online 
now facilitates individuals who in the previous run of things would be understood to have been spreading bile and hate and disseminating stuff which is clearly clearly aimed at messing with people's lives and causing division how they have found a home with each other within an online community in a way that would not previously have been the case it has allowed people to connect with each other and there are enormous examples of this all across the world yes and it's here too well that's why I think sport is such an extraordinary borderline unique weapon because a dressing room and uh, your participation on a team, for instance, to use that more typical formal example of a GEA team or a soccer team, uh, that does not distinguish between your views on uh, the issue of the day. So you're as likely to uh, be down that uh, dirty hole of propaganda if uh, if you're good with your right foot as you are if you're if you're not. So um, you're. You're, the echo chamber effect and you talked about people connecting with each other and then yeah, going further down deeper and, and the echo chamber continues like what is a dressing room but like just a random collection of the town where you're exposed to people who don't necessarily share your ideas and if the route we're going down in macro terms is echo chamber and surround yourself further with people who agree with you like what, what one of the great um, I, I sitting in a dressing room with 10 other people to go what are you talking about yeah well I mean, that's a great weapon and not many um, I can't think of many other areas alike which will provide that going forward you know it's kind of, without it, it, overextending the, um, the importance of sport but I just mean uh, the image of teenager stuck in his or her bedroom going down bad place and then going to the dressing room and saying oh, I was reading this thing and to have the rest of them go no come on that's great yeah, I think it's really, really important. And you understand always, I think there's two aspects as well that I'd add to that. The first is that you don't, just because you don't agree w- with somebody on something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a malignant human being. Of course not. And like and, the, lov- and the lovely um, undercurrent there is you're about to go out and play together as a team. Yeah, and that's it. That's it, exactly. You can fundamentally disagree with somebody over anything. Yeah. But it doesn't make you morally just and them entirely malignant and if you can generally speaking it's you end up if you spend enough time with someone who you even don't you fundamentally disagree with you can kind of find a common space of course some sort of a common space often but equally you have to be unafraid to tell them if you think they were wrong and I, I mean that was such a great spat um, a few years ago over Brexit and other things between uh, Peter Reid, for example, and Peter Shilton, who shared a dressing room and a World Cup, went on tour together with England. And, yeah. and Peter Reid, who just got stuck into him, Shilton, for the nonsense that he was mm. he was spouting. Mm. But it was done in a kind of a... It was it was done in a in a I won't say a respectful way because it was... Shilton was spouting such nonsense that you had to kind of call it out fairly brutally. Yeah. But it was still, it wouldn't have been possible if they hadn't had that shared space in the dressing room. Yeah. And it could have descended into something much worse. And and again, you don't have to like everyone in the dressing room, but you have to share a common purpose with them. And there's there's something about that. Oh, they're, they're for sure. They're, I, I can't think of too many other vehicles in life that will provide that, not least going forward. 
Uh, anyway, that, that's a weighty topic to, to get into. Identity and sport and modern life, we've talked about that in the past and, and gone through the history of this country. I know you were with Brian O'Driscoll and Craig Doyle and David Irwin at the recent Six Nations talking to the Irish team about Ireland's call and anthems. Um, it's funny on the anthem point. So as we uh, start to have these very public conversations now about a united Ireland, someone within the first two minutes will say, oh, we, need to talk, we need to talk about the anthem. And it's f- like, I think most of us will go through uh, one week to the next without hearing the anthem or thinking about the anthem, except for sporting events. Um, that's not to say the anthem is not important if we don't like sport, but I can think of another area, maybe the end of nightclubs, uh, notwithstanding, do they still do it? No, I don't think so. I don't think there are <laughs> nightclubs anymore. At all. OK, but I can think it, there, there's no other public area where people will routinely be uh, confronted, to use a uh, too strong a term, with, say, a new anthem or the anthem, certainly. Um, so sport and identity, because, uh, well, I guess since the beginning of time, you were representing a place in sport. Yeah. Um, so identity, I think about sport in terms not of identity, but identities, because you can be so many different things at the same time, which are both local, national and international. It can be representative of gender and of class and, and of of the area from which you come. Mm. And so there's a whole load of different things there. In terms of a united Ireland, we're, we're, I disagree with you that there's endless conversation about a united Ireland I don't think there's any conversation about a united Ireland the beginnings the beginnings we're at the beginnings okay. of public conversation I, would you not I, agree we are at the beginnings of it I think there's a lot of lip service being played on not one political party including one who makes most hay about of this particular topic has produced any sort of a plan in relation to what it considers to be a plan for a united Ireland nobody is seriously nobody has produced any serious agenda by which this might happen or the form in which it would take. And, and to be honest with you, fixing the anthem, deciding what anthem to use. I mean, most people in Ireland, I do a thing with students, actually. It's it's a really interesting thing to do with with students. I ask students, I go four lines into the national anthem. They also, I ask them, first of all, who would agree with getting rid of the national anthem? And then I go four lines or five lines into the national anthem. Sinn Féin, Fáil, Tófi, Gallagher, So what does that mean? And I ask everyone who knows what it means to put up their hands. So people are used to reciting it, but they sing words that they don't know the meaning of in mm. very many instances. So yeah. that's that's that, that's in, in terms in terms of the anthem. So anthems should have meaning. And they, to be honest, fixing the anthem, fixing the colour of the jersey, fixing the emblem on it, or who picks the team, that would be easy compared to putting together two education systems. What happens? What history are you taught? Do you do GCSEs or do you do the junior cert? Do you do leave and cert or A levels? What coinage is going to be used? Is there going to be a parliament in Belfast or a parliament in Dublin or a parliament in both places? Will there also be one in Galway or in Cork? And so on. The football and and uh, and uh, sorry, the, the the rugby team is obviously united, mm. but but organizing organizing two soccer teams to play together will be really straightforward. What's played around it, that'll be fine. However... Disagree a touch. Do you? Why? I mean... Wait I'm not saying it's going to be easy, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say it's going to be much easier than fixing two education, two health systems. Yeah, true. Probably very true. And certainly less important. But I guarantee you, if you're chatting in the pub 
and people are saying, what bugs you about this unification business? I'm not sure they'll be getting into the vagaries of coinage or GCSE or Relieving Cert or whatever we call the new curriculum. Not that they shouldn't be, by the way. It is important. I'm just saying, I guarantee a lot of people in the first three or four things that might bug them, they might say, I just hate the new anthem. The Aviva. Listen, have you heard this new anthem? Guarantee you. Uh, no, there's not the, no, the big, enough. big talking points for forevermore. People still give a bit out about Ireland's call every time it's played. So, so well, I'll come back against I'm that. I'm not saying it's say. important, but it's just in, the, in terms of these, the, um, uh, like well, the, the visibility symbols, symbols of sport. Are, symbolism. Sy- symbols, yeah. symbols are important and people's new states, which this would be, it'd be a new state. Yeah. They have always used sport to project their new status and, and that's right but I will say to you I'll come back to you and I'll <laughs> say that this will pay beside the idea if somebody has to pay 3 or 4% more income tax in order to fund it and I'm not saying that they will just to be clear before anyone gets upset yeah. I'm not saying that they will but I'll say that it will pale much more yeah. it will pale beside that and oh, of course it will I'm not saying people might be right but I think they'll quickly adjust to okay that's just that's just the you know the, the mundane aspect of living but then on a Saturday when they're watching an, uh, an Irish international, hate that bloody anthem. Be complained about more. It's funny, James Ryan, who I know you've had on yeah. previously, James Ryan wrote, um, just wrote a paper in, in UCD on Ireland's Call a couple of years ago. Mm. And, you know, it, it's a very particular insight being a rugby international, most likely future captain. Yeah. And really, just a really smart, genuine decent human being and it's 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 excellent just considered yeah and this is James Ryan whose great-grandfather was in the GPO and whose great-grandfather and great-granduncle would have been separated by civil war and, and everything to, to to do with that so it's it's from a it's from with that hinterland hmm. to come to come back towards things and I think there's a difference between the great swathe of people and people who were extremists on the margins of either side. And you can never, ever, you can never, ever satisfy everybody. That's, sure. that's the one, that's the one lesson. Anytime you do anything in public, you understand completely that there are a group of people who think you're an idiot, yeah. regardless. doesn't matter. And you can't worry about that. But the great swathe of people, if you can engage with them and they can see it, even if they disagree with what you're saying, if they can... I acknowledge that it's a reasonable perspective. Yes. Then I think you're in business. Well, I think that's very fair. I also agree with that. And I, I would have great faith in the vast majority of people still. And so, yeah, the le- there are loud voices when it comes to Ireland's call. I dare say the vast majority of people increasingly accept it. Doesn't ruin their day. Well, well, I, I think a way to look at it is you have people on the Irish rugby team and in the Irish rugby squad who are consider themselves to be British while living on Ireland and that's their identity mm. and they're being asked to sing an anthem which talks about strangers coming from across the sea they're being asked to stand under a flag where that flag has been associated with a level of violence against their community that is horrendous. And we don't really want to talk about that anymore because Mm. we all want to burnish the edges of it and move on and do all of that kind of stuff. 
but that that past is is undeniable and uh, what are we prepared to do to accommodate a different perspective of you do we really do we really want unity what kind of unity do we want do we just want majoritarianism well that's been tried on the north disgracefully and the treatment of nationalists in northern ireland was disgraceful mm. absolutely disgraceful for generations so what are we going to do replicate that is that is that the way we I'm, I'm not sure we're of a mind to go too far oh no we 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 don't even want to think about it yeah So where does that leave us? <laughs> <laughs> it leaves us with people criticising Ireland's call because now you can regard Ireland's call as as musically horrendous if you want. Yeah. I, that's, a, that's an I like tea, you like coffee conversation and that's completely fine. But really, the sentiment of it? Yeah, that's a fair point. Like, I, 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 there's a difference between do you think, uh, what, the song. What, what percentage do you think are more I just really don't like the song versus the sentiment I, I would like to think not too many are against the sentiment I th- well I think the sentiment that they're probably against is the idea that is, the national anthem is not being played sure I think that's the sentiment that they reject not necessarily the sentiment of the song yeah. but if you reject the sentiment of the if you by insisting on the national an- anthem, you're essentially rejecting the sentiment of the song. Yes. Well, look, like I said, we can talk about the education system. We'll be having long conversations about the anthem, I guarantee you. Gar- well, guaranteed. Sh- we, you, can be sure, you can be sure about this. And it, it's, it's interesting, Joe, in the 1930s, Cormac Moore's written a book about this. The soccer split between North and South was nearly fixed in the early 30s. And it came down essentially to a dispute over which Alicadoos would sit on the international board and it all fell apart mm. when it was very close to a deal. So this this idea of accommodation is real and, and wh- why is the rugby team able to field on a united basis despite everything? And what it essentially comes down to is a lot of people were willing to swallow hard yeah. and make compromises and do things that must have stuck in their gullet. Yes to allow this to happen mm. both sides mm. both sides and and in the projection in that it is a projection of national success and how unity might work yes but it does demand compromise your reflections on women and modern Irish sport when given a week ago the uh, female GA players of the country came forward and said well we've had enough of this and integration needs to happen quick smart or certainly money needs to be made available as a show of good faith if integration is going to take the five or ten projected years so um, on the one hand it seems like we've seen extraordinary uh, progression and yet it's not moving nearly fast enough either that I think it'd be the general refrain on where we are so I know I'm um, I know I'm meant to be on here plugging my own book but I'd like to plug a different book uh, if I could Emma Ryan's new book on being a woman in Irish sport is brilliant and I really wished I'd read it before training the girls minor team that I have in Plunkers now and I've taken them from six year olds up to 18 year olds so it's 12 years basically of this and I really wish I'd read it because it gave such a fundamental insight into the practical experiences of the differential in gender treatment in, in the country extending back over over the last 30 years and 
what we have here is the legacy of overt discrimination which continues it's got much better to argue otherwise doesn't make sense but the idea that you could fix more than a century of overt discrimination which was reflective of broader discrimination in society but possibly because of the physical nature of of sport and everything around it was even worse and its clubability yes. and its associational nature was 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 appalling in sport and the idea that you could fix something like that in as short order as a few decades this is this this will be another half century in the turning mm. and that's a brutal reality for for anybody who who um who wants to seriously consider sport in the country now i would be i would be really insistent on this that the divides in gender must be considered, but they cannot be considered also in isolation because the divides in class in this country and access to sport rooted around ideas of class are also enormous. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it does strike me when it comes to sport that the girl and boy in the wealthy area and the girl and boy in the uh, lower class, less wealthy area uh, the girl and boy in the wealthy area have a lot more in common than the two girls and the two boys in terms of their access to sport and their likelihood to participate in sport from from this point on, certainly. And we know this from really detailed studies produced by the Irish Sports Council or Sport Ireland and this detailed look at what happens to working class participation in sport, but what even happens to access to facilities in sport, the distribution of money by the state to fund facilities, even something as basic as the facilities available to primary schools in the country, the gross disparity between wealthy areas and poorer areas. And I say this as someone who lives in the north inner city and can see on a daily basis the manner in which working class kids are discriminated against mm. in in this in this data and all of the stuff that goes around it. And again, you need money to be able to play sport. It's not just having the money to join Royal Dublin or to buy a pony or to do whatever you want to do on that. We understand that. But you need money to be a member of a GA club. That's that's a simple fact. You need to buy gear. You need to be able to pay the membership. You need to be able to run through it. And you could say, okay, maybe between everything I can I might get boots. You might buy boots and you buy a Hurley and you buy a helmet. You've got to travel to matches. You have to buy the gear. You have to pay the membership of the club, and there's always a few more pounds spent everywhere. To deny, to deny that is really hard. And there was a lot of people who are really struggling, and they do not have it. Even for people who are in a middle band at the moment, they feel the the outgo of that money. Mm. Now you find it if you can, but but it, to pretend it doesn't matter, to pretend that sport is classless is utterly dishonest and we lie to ourselves when when, when when we do that. Yeah. And we lie about our own failures when yes. we do that. I think that's very true. And not least in very high profile sports like soccer where uh, probably a majority of the players who are uber famous and reach the upper echelons are working class. It's easy for us to indulge in that lie. But it's not the truth. They are really the exceptions. Yeah, and we also, but we also, Joe, in the Gaelic Athletic Association like to pretend that it's a classless organisation. But that's just simply not true. Mm. Um, 
so we can't, I mean, there's, we could talk, when we're talking about modern sport, it's such a broad topic. There was something I was curious to get your thoughts on. It's, it's less specifically Irish, but I guess, you know, given uh, the nature of teams we support and uh, just how international the world is, the complication of watching sport now, like never before, is uh, staring us starkly in the face. So, like, as of 2014, to put it into context, the PIF, the Saudi PIF, is investing in making foreign investments. Been around since the 70s, but it's only the last decade it's made foreign investments and straight away has looked at sport and hoovered up what they could get. And um, the viewing experience for all of us has never felt more complicated and it's never felt less likely to improve, uh, I would think. I'm curious for your thoughts on just the weirdness of these states um, rogue in certain instances owning teams and, and running sport okay so what's happening with Saudi Arabia is fascinating to, 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 to watch we can I know there's a report or the, this, the deposition before the Senate yesterday saying that well actually the PGA Tour retains a majority voting and the new vehicle that now controls war will control world golf therefore everything is fine mm. this is nonsense nonsense Saudi Arabia have bought the world golf essentially they have bought it yeah. and they bought it for considering the amount of money more than 500 billion dollars in that in that fund they bought it for what 3 billion 2 I think yeah like not bad not a bad invest- investment for having something there and they're in talks over tennis. There's talks that there's there's the speculation that they tried to buy Formula One and are about to come back for more. They've already built the 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 track which opened a few years ago for the Saudi Arabian mm. Grand Prix. They've pushed in and bought Newcastle, as you know, in the in 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 the Premier League. It is as inevitable as night follows day that a, a PIF there will be PIF ownership of a major American f- sporting franchise soon enough so the question is why and the easy answer is that this is sports washing mm. and it's about to it's about an attempt to disguise the violent or repressive or aggressive natures of the regime. I don't really think that that's what it is. It's a hundred percent not. I, I think it's. I, th- I, th- I think, in fact, it achieves the opposite of that. I knew very little about Qatar until a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it achieves. I think what it does is it draws people's attention to those things and it shines a light into those places. Like, would anyone have known about the treatment, for example, of migrant labour and the pr- and and yeah. and. The, the, the position of the indentured workforce in those places so you have to think what is it about and obviously it is about a geopolitics it's about the positioning of the tilting the world's axis to say the American century is done yeah. and that the important area in the world is shifting in a particular way and okay India is the most populous country in the world and there's a vast Chinese economy but we're unbelievably wealthy here and we will play in, in on the world stage, so I think that matters. Yeah. Number two, I think it's to do with the construction of a vast world of tourism and service industries that are based loosely around sport, but are mainly about leisure and culture. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we will reinvent ourselves for a post-carbon age, which is coming. Ultimately, it may take 
decades yet, but it's coming and that source of Saudi wealth will become greatly diminished in its importance. So that's what PIFs are for. They're they're there to invest in in a future. And it is but one of this this Saudi the Saudi investment fund is just one of many investment funds going around as we know, including yeah. from the Norwegians and everyone has them. The manner in which they have gone after this. So, so, so there is a question though: Will they lose interest? Will they see that they won't get a return on money in this? Because it's not too long ago that the Chinese were going to were used were thought that they would push into soccer, produce all these soccer players, win the World Cup within twenty years, and had its plan. And yeah. that's kind of gone. True. So there is no inevitability in here. And what we do know is it does take consistency of application. But if you look at the manner in which they're approaching it, it really is in the longer term yeah. that they're going. And look at the changes in I, I like Newcastle United, the attempt to go after Newcastle United, how long that took and what they've done since getting it. It's been incremental in how they've gone at it. And I'd say the plan there is let's wait, let's try and win the Premier League within five years. And uh, where does that leave Paul from Offaly who wants to just have a beer and he supports Newcastle and just really wants to watch Newcastle but doesn't know where to sit with all this? I think people have always made compromises around sport. They will continue to make compromises around sport. And it was funny. It was funny. Um, I did this again thing with a group of second year I teach a course called Sport in the Modern World in UCD which is basically history of the modern sporting world Mm. and the global context and I asked the students this year there was was about 75 of them in the lecture hall and I asked them who thought it was wrong that the World Cup was played in Qatar and about three quarters of students voted that it was wrong that it was being played there and I asked who wasn't going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. And and the reality of it is that sport just transcends yeah. all of these issues, all of these things that people people come to accommodations with themselves. It doesn't mean though that they endorse what's happening. Correct. Um we're pretty much out of time and like there were a whole array of other things I wanted to talk to you about from like the lofty and you know doping in sport and there's a, an enhanced games uh, project on next year just, have you seen this in Australia to have like a, take what you want let's just see who can run the fastest and whatever yeah. drugs you can get your hands of uh, from the lofty to uh, the importance of the pool table in Belfield so I'm, I'm not going to get time to do all that but do you want to give us a final thought on a sports place in modern Ireland and and where we are in 2023 when it comes to our love of sport and sports place in our lives I think the way I'd, I think I'd, the way I'd end it is that what I've written about is just my experience but this is sport is deeply personal onto each individual so what sport what I see how I see sport and how I experience sport is entirely different than yours or maybe shared characteristics but in the round yours is totally different and so on Mm. across everything and what is clear though is that for every society for which we have a record sport was central to it there will be a sport out into the future and we from everything we know about the human condition people will be interested in sport and the manner in which the sport world continually changes will create new possibilities, new interests, new avenues. If you think, for example, okay, I I 
go back to the early 80s in Offaly watching sporting competitions there but now the limit of what I could watch was enormous I'd never seen American football I'd never seen baseball I'd never seen basketball none of these sports Mm. never saw them Hmm. and then what I can do now is wherever I am in the world if I've got the money I can buy the app I can watch all of those sports not just the odd game I can watch every single game in the NFL next autumn I can do the same with basketball watch them day after I can spend all my days watching basketball and it comes down to Bill Rasmussen was the guy who founded ESPN in 1979 and Bill Rasmussen was laughed when he said he was going to put ESPN on all day and all night for 365 days of the year he was mocked people said there's not a chance of this and Bill Rasmussen said no there is an insatiable appetite for sport in America and he was proven right by the end of the 80s so within 10 years he was shown live NBA matches live NFL matches but had constructed a whole world around the draft around the Hall of Fame around museums adding to it then documentaries books Hmm. and later a website and the proof of his words are real and what has happened now is that it's gone from the screen in the corner of your room as it was in the 1940s so there were 15,000 televisions in America in 1945 and then it began to spread just went everywhere so that was transformative with satellite coverage from the 1960s then it went to to dedicated sports channels and now every single there is no event in this world now that cannot be live tweeted that cannot be shown by any sports organisation using basic technology that you can buy for a couple of hundred dollars and broadcast your your game your, you and me set up the, the, the News Talk Tiddlywinks Federation and we put that live stream it and we can do it so this has created an incredible diversity of opportunity of viewership and of, and of engagement mm. As ever fascinating talking to you about a whole array of different things Thanks for having me in Joe The uh, very best of luck with the book Sport in Modern Irish Life by Paul Rouse is very much on sale and in all good bookstores now Thanks Paul Thank you Joe